In the midst of verses that almost seem like a Christian's to-do list, Hebrews 13.8 drops in and declares, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But it's no mistake. Just like when the Holy Spirit begins the book of Hebrews with the word God. So the Holy Spirit once again drives our attention to the centrality of Christ. Coming up on Daily in Christ, the prominence and preeminence of Christ. Welcome once again to the Daily in Christ podcast, and this is an important podcast, number 50 in the Hebrews, the Glory of the New Covenant series, and this particular lesson will be the concluding lesson. Today, we're in Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 7. I won't spend too much time in verse 7, but last time we were talking about the prominence of Christ and making sure that our thinking kept tracking along with context. Hebrews is not about our behavior. Now, don't get me wrong. Our behavior is the byproduct of the prime product, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the root. And you know what? Even the Holy Spirit is the fruit that manifests in our lives. And so all throughout the scripture and all throughout the book of Hebrews, the Lord Jesus Christ is prominent. And I use the analogy of Mount Everest. Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world. However, it's surrounded by mountains that are close to its own height. So comparatively speaking, Mount Everest is not prominent. Some have said that Everest stands on the shoulders of the Himalayas. But then you take some other uh, mountains like Kilimanjaro, In Tanzania or McKinley up in Alaska, where the surrounding train is much lower, and so they are far more prominent. Well, today we're going to add a word to the prominence of Christ, and that is the preeminence of Christ. Going back to the analogy of Everest, obviously Everest is preeminent compared to all the other mountains in that it has the distinction of being the tallest mountain. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is preeminent all throughout the scripture. Well, let's take some time right now before we get to the text for today. And let's go to the Lord of the Word as we before we turn to the Word of the Lord. Father, thank you again for the great treasure, the great gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ your perfect son, our perfect high priest, our perfect brother, the one who is the first and the last. Father, I pray today for our study in your word. Thank you so much, Lord, for the book of Hebrews. Thank you, Father, how it drives our attention not to ourselves and our own self-righteousness, but Lord, it drives us to you, to whom All the glory is due. And Father, your righteousness, given freely by grace through faith in Christ, grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the full, complete knowledge of you, the eyes of our heart being enlightened, Lord. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now again, Hebrews chapter 12, let's begin in verse 7. Remember those who rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would not for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner." And we'll get to that final benediction, verses 20 and 21, a little bit later. Last time we talked about the lets of the beginning of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And uh, these are the results of the reality of Christ alive in us. God didn't just give us life. That life is wrapped up in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is living in us. And as we rely upon God and his grace by faith, Jesus lives through us. You know, these verses, one through seven, uh, sort of tick off different uh, things, almost like in uh, to-do list, checklist fashion, you know, like a Christian's to-do list. And you're going through those verses, and then you hit verse 8, and it's like, whoa, did we, what happened with the scripture? It just sort of totally changes course, and all of a sudden it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, you see, the importance of that verse drives us back. The Holy Spirit is driving us back to the center of our faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of our lesson last time, we were looking at verse 7 about remembering those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. What did they see in their leaders? They saw godly men. Why were they godly? Because they were God-centered. And the anchor of their faith that was so commendable that the Holy Spirit says, whose faith follow, is because the center of that faith is the center of the Bible and the center of the book of Hebrews, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Hebrews 13.8, where it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, seems to be out of context only to those who are seeing the to-do list 
seeing a to-do list in verses 1 through 7, instead of understanding the outworking of the life of Christ within. And those who seem to think, wait a minute, this Hebrews 13.8 is out of context, are those who are can be carried about with various and strange doctrines. Jesus Christ is the center of our faith. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This drives to the one of the aspects of the nature of God. As the theologians say, God is immutable. He is unchanging, unchangeable. He wouldn't be perfect if he changed. Because if you changed from perfection, you'd be less than perfect. You know, I'm reminded that the immutability of God is closely related. Again, the theologians use the term aseity or self-existence of God. Remember, God revealed himself to his servant Moses at the burning bush as I am that I am. And that name, that declaration of I am, when Moses, again, this is in Exodus chapter 3, said to the Lord, who shall I say sent me to them? The Lord said, I am that I am. He is the source of all that is good. It means that God is self-sustaining and non-dependent. I like how theologian Walter Elwell defines the aseity or self-existence of God. He says this, God is self-existent. All other spirits are created and so have a beginning. They owe their existence to another. God does not depend upon the world or anyone in it for his existence. The world depends on God for its existence. Contrary to those theologians who say we cannot know anything about God in himself, Jesus revealed that God has life in himself. John 5.26 The ground of God's being is not in others, for there is nothing more ultimate than himself. God is uncaused, the one who always is. And Elwell references what I was just talking about in Exodus 3.14. To ask who caused God is to ask a self-contradictory question in terms of Jesus' view of God. Another term conveying the concept of God's self-existence is aseity. It comes from the Latin, a meaning from and say, meaning oneself. God is underived, necessary, non-dependent existence. Understanding that God is non-contingent helps to understand how God is unlimited by anything or infinite, free, self-determined, and not determined by anything other than himself, contrary to his own sovereign purposes. Now, that's uh, Elwell's definition of a seity or self-existence of God. When he says non-contingent, what that means is this, you know, we say that something is contingent upon something else, that something else has to happen first, and then what's contingent upon it happens as a following result. God is totally non-contingent. It can be hard for us to wrap our mind around this idea, but hey, we're talking about God. God is infinite. God is beyond infinite. And he is. 
And so we can depend upon God without worry that things with him ever change. Our world is constantly changing. You know, and the older I get, the more I see this. Change, change, change. But God himself is unchangeable. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that owes itself to the self-existence of God. The anchor of our faith is God himself and all that he is. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's opposed to being carried about by different and varied and alien teachings, as it says in verse 9. That's the amplified version. Uh, so you have the, the stability and the solid ground of God himself in the Lord Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then on the other side of that is uh, verse uh, 9, where it says, do not be carried about, literally, um, let me see if I can see that in the Amplified again. Carried about by different and varied and alien teachings. You know, law thinking, which is focused on our living by doing, that's the heart of the law. Galatians 3.11, based on Leviticus 18.5. Living by means of what we do. Law thinking is full of distractions. For example, foods, what to eat, what not to eat, all what to do, what not to do, instead of being focused on Christ and feeding upon him. Oh, that's so important. It says there in verse 9, For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied by them. That's powerful. It is good that the heart be established by grace. I've heard different people say to me, Mark, you emphasize the grace of God too much. Uh, people are, 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 are going to you know, get an excuse to sin or, or something like that. And I just sort of chuckle because in God's mind, grace is huge. And right here we can see it is good for the heart to be established by grace. And the Greek word established means sure, fixed, to make firm or reliable so as to warrant security and inspire confidence, to strengthen, make true, and fulfill. How does that happen? The heart is established by grace. And remember that the word heart in the Greek means understanding. So in the Amplified, it says established and ennobled and strengthened by means of grace. Now, let's remember something that's very important. And this is the basis of the heart established by grace. Look at verse 10. It says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. What is the basis that establishes our heart by grace? Well, all of what Hebrews so diligently and persistently and repeatedly teaches the basis of the blessings of God's grace given freely through Christ is this, 
the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the perfect son, perfect high priest, perfect sacrificial offering. That's the perfection of who he is, not the imperfection of who we are. Man, that's important. (laughs) Did you get what I just said? The focus is the perfection of who he is, not the imperfection of who we are. I have a problem with preaching that's focused on us, focused on, well, you got to straighten this up. Well, you're doing that wrong. It's focusing on our imperfections instead of focusing and feeding upon the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, because of who he is, you, brother and sister in Christ, are qualified for the total acceptance total blessing, and total favor of God. That's called grace. Not because of your perfection, but based upon the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know this rubs against the grain of our fallen thinking, but this is where repentance comes in. Repentance means to change the mind. You see, the fallen mind, which is where things have to be changed, the fallen mind gravitates towards self and self-righteousness. It has a focus on self and what self is doing or should do or should not do. But the reality is the center is not ourselves. The center is God himself. And so the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ is that solid ground, perfect son, perfect high priest, perfect sacrificial offering. And then what else does Hebrews talk about and go into great depth repeatedly? The perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ's finished work throughout his life, perfect conception, perfect life, always and unfailingly walking in perfect obedience to his father, perfect suffering, perfect blood, perfect sacrifice, perfect death, perfect resurrection, perfect ascension, perfect reigning on the throne of God at the right hand of God the Father, and not the imperfection of your performance, good or bad. You know, after I go through all those perfects about the perfection of his person and the perfection of his perfect finished work, I like to tag it by saying, can you improve on perfect? No, you can't and no, you should not. And so all of this is rooted upon what Hebrews is talking about, the centrality of Christ, the perfection of his person, and the centrality of his perfect finished work. Remember the lesson we learned in Hebrews chapter 4 when it was talking about the Sabbath rest and the idea that Sabbath is tied to the finished work of God in the creation. He sanctified the seventh day And he ceased from working. Why did God cease from his works? Because he was finished. And we enter that Sabbath rest. Why are we resting? Is it because we're tired? No. We would observe the Sabbath because that is the response, the fitting response by ceasing from work to the fact that God finished his work. That's the response. We rest in 
the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have to move on. Verse 10, let's get into this a little bit more. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Did you see that? We have an altar. That's part of the new covenant reality that we're in. The new covenant is God's agreement between father and son. The father holds up his end. The son holds up his end. And we are in the son caught up in the blessing of it. We have that altar. And what is an altar? A place of sacrifice. As opposed to those who are under law who have no such rights. Again, all throughout Hebrews, we can see this repeating theme of Old Covenant, Law Covenant copies and shadows versus New Covenant realities. Here's a copy example. It says, in the Old Covenant, they eat at the Old Covenant altar, but they have no right to eat at the altar that we eat from, we partake from, Christ's altar, which is the real one in heaven. Do you notice that that says they, those old covenant, law covenant priests, have no right to eat at this new covenant altar? No rights. If we approach, there there are no rights under law. Let me clarify. It isn't necessarily the priest's. But a person has no rights under law to approach God and this altar, the heavenly altar. No rights at all under law. If we approach the Lord in any way based upon our goodness, our righteousness, our holiness, we have no right to eat at Christ's heavenly altar. But you see, the believer in Christ under the new covenant does absolutely have the right to partake of the blessings and the benefits of Christ's perfect finished sacrifice. We do. Those who are under law have no rights. We under Christ have all rights. Now, let me say something. I said no rights under law. There's in our next series, we're actually going to be talking in a much greater depth about not under law. Very important series. Don't miss it. It's coming up right after we finish this particular series in Hebrews. But you see, even the believer can get into a law thinking quandary where we think once you start getting into a law thinking, you're thinking that God is relating to you on the basis of your performance, your goodness, your righteousness. So it's always a question of, am I doing the right thing or am I doing the wrong thing? Instead of being focused and centered upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, this is so important to understand. No, the basis of our relationship with God is not our performance. The basis of our relationship upon God, with God, is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, His perfection, and His perfect finished work. That's why it says the just shall live by faith. But the devil and the world and our own fallen thinking will try to get us to think, well, I'm really not good enough to get the blessings of God. 
I'm really not good enough to approach God because I failed here, I've fallen short there, I didn't do what I should have done over here. When we get to that thinking, that's law thinking, and it's like the rights have been stripped away. The rights haven't been stripped away, but we think they're stripped away. It's the devil's biggest trick to keep us from enjoying God. But the reality is we have all the rights to come to this altar, to worship, to enjoy the blessings of God, to partake of the blessings and benefits of Christ's perfect, finished sacrifice. And we were talking about, uh, you know, that the old covenant is shadows and copies of the new covenant order. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, uh, the old covenant sacrificial order is, uh, well, let me go ahead and go back to that particular verse. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. We're going to read 23 and 24. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things, now this is speaking of all that was involved with the old covenant, law covenant sacrifices, that the copies of the of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us." Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He would then have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once and after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. That's over in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23 to the end of the chapter. We can see that Jesus Christ entered the holy place that wasn't made by human hands, not a place which is a copy, but the real thing in heaven itself. And fundamentally, to appear in the presence of God for us. That's what a priest does. A priest ministers for the people on behalf of the people to God. And the rest of those verses um, say that he offered himself once. And then over in Hebrews 26 B, it says this, but now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's the reality we're in. We're in the reality of the perfect, finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verses uh, 11, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 through... 13. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. 
You know, I'm struck when I read these verses about the love of God. You know, I'm reminded of what it says over in Romans chapter 5. God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, here in verse 12, talk about love. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify. You know what that means, sanctify? It means make holy sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. Do you know as a result of him shedding his blood, we are sanctified? We are made holy? Why? Because Jesus suffered outside the gate. He took our shame. He took our sin. He took our rejection. And what do we get? We are sanctified with his own blood, perfect blood that brings perfect sanctification. And just as much as Jesus suffered and bled for us, his suffering and bleeding for us is the degree of our sanctification, perfect suffering and perfect blood yields perfect results, a perfect and complete sanctification. I bristle a lot at the idea that I've heard some very, very well-meaning Christians and even some very well-meaning doctrines and theologies that says that somehow sanctification is imperfect in this life. That is so wrong because sanctification is tied to the perfection of Jesus and the perfection of his blood. If we think for a moment that this sanctification that we have is somehow imperfect in this life, what we're saying is that Jesus' blood isn't perfect. And that's an abomination. I get into this a whole lot more in my very important series. You can get it at the Daily in Christ website living in the reality of perfect sanctification. And I get back to this idea of love. He shed his blood. And he also suffered shame. He was crucified outside the city on that hill called Calvary. You know, the early Christians were Jews that had been the recipients of this epistle. And they were put out of the temple put out of the synagogue for believing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And this really hurt them deeply because the temple or a synagogue was really the center of the Jewish community. And to be put out of the synagogue, to be put out of the temple, created great pain and grief, the pain and grief of being an outcast. Maybe you, Christian, are dealing with persecution and rejection for being a Christian. Well, you're not alone. Jesus Christ went through the same thing. He was... That sacrifice happened outside the gate, is what it says in verse 12. And verse 13 says, Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his Reproach. I just want to back up. There's something really important of what it says that that those animals under the old covenant were burned outside the gate. The idea of burning is a t- 
total sacrifice. And that's tied to what Jesus the Messiah did when he died at Calvary outside the gate. A perfect total sacrifice performed once, never to be repeated again because it's so good and so perfect. And we are the recipients of that great sacrifice. But even if we do suffer persecution, even if we're rejected, even if it might even split a family, you're not wanting to be divisive, but there are people who don't like you as a Christian. We are not homeless. Jesus is outside that gate too. He suffered the rejection, the pain. He knows what it's like. And look at what it says there. In verse 13, let us therefore go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his his reproach. When they're rejecting you because of Christ, they're really not rejecting you. Sad to say, they're rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at what it says in verse 14. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come, even to these Jewish Christians who were put out of the synagogue or put out of the temple. You know, that earthly Jerusalem, and we talked about this a couple of episodes earlier in Hebrews chapter 12, the earthly Jerusalem versus the heavenly Jerusalem. We have a place to call home. For here on this in this world, we don't really have a place to call home. But we have one that is to come. We have the Lord who, and in the center of that city, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We have him now and heaven as home to come. That's so good to think about. I've got to move on. Let's uh, move on to verse 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, let's just walk through this. First of all, and this is powerful, verse 15, therefore by him. Do you see that? Therefore by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. God is not only the end, the ultimate end of all things, but God himself through the Lord Jesus Christ is also the means. This reminds me of the verses over in Hebrews chapter 9, where it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How did Jesus do it? How in the world did the, not in the world, not of the world, Jesus offered himself fully to God right there in Hebrews 9.14, we see how it was through by means of the eternal spirit. And then over here where we are in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, 
15, it says, therefore, by him, Jesus himself is the means. People say, well, how do you do it? It's not how to, it's who does it. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, by means of him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. And here's something that's powerful as well. Here's sort of the outworking of, of this life uh, of sacrificial praise to God. Uh, it, it says in verse 16, do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. You know, this is sacrificial doing of good, sacrificial sharing. You know, it's one thing to do someone good and, and it doesn't take a whole lot to do it, a lot of time, a lot of expense, a lot of effort. But then there's a sacrificial thing where, you know what, it's cutting into uh, our resources, but it really isn't cutting into our resources when we're looking to Christ and doing it through him. The result is doing good for others and sharing with others in a sacrificial way. And God is pleased with that. How? when we do it by means of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 17, it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. You know, it's interesting. I noticed, and I never noticed this before as I was studying for this lesson, that the phrase, those who rule over you, appears three times here in Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 7, it says, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct, those who rule over you. Then here in verse 17, it says, for they watch, those who rule over us, watch, the Greek is, are vigilant over your souls as those who must give an account. And then it goes on to say to you know, submit to them with joy and not with a grief, grievous attitude. For that would not be, that would be unprofitable for you. These are the leaders, the rulers that God has set to lead and guide us. And then over in verse 24, it says, greet all those who rule over you. And so this is the outworking of the life where we are relying upon this outcome by means of the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in him, looking to him, feeding on him. Well, he says in verse uh, 18 and 19, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Frequently, the apostle uh, would say, pray for me. And he, he would say, I'm praying for you. That reflects the heart of the Spirit, saying, I'm praying for you. You know, I think of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says, Ever since I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not ceased giving thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayer. And again, this is the outworking of the life of Christ within us, that instinct, that Holy Spirit instinct to pray for each other. 
not be critical of each other, but pray for one another. There are needs, there are situations, there are things we're all falling short and pray for one another. That's the instinct of the love of Christ. Well, I can't believe it, but after 50 lessons, we are drawing our extended study of the book of Hebrews called Hebrews, the glory of the new covenant down for a landing that lands on two verses here in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, which reads, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, in just those two verses, it seems to touch on all of the critical, central themes of all of Hebrews. Do you see how God-centered this final word is, This, as they call it, a benediction? Totally God-centered. Now may the God of peace. I want to flip over to the very first word of the book of Hebrews, and I pointed this out in lesson one. Hebrews 1.1 says, God. God. It begins with the word God. And here we are at the end of Hebrews, and God is the focus. Now may the God. So do you see that God is the one who's performing the action, not you in this benediction? And it says the God of peace. Remember, the audience was Jews. And peace to them meant shalom, which means all is well. It speaks of a wholeness, not just a lack of conflict, but it speaks of all dimensions of the life going well. Spiritual, physical, emotional, mental, that's shalom, and that's the peace of God. Now may the God of peace, the God of shalom, and it says, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. God himself, the Father, did this. He's the one who raised up Jesus from the dead through the Spirit. And by the way, in Ephesians 1.19, it ties that thought that God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus up and lifted him up far above all principality and power, seating him at the right hand of God the Father. Guess what? In Ephesians 1.19, it says that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you, believer. That's powerful. And then it says that great shepherd of the sheep. You know, a shepherd is one who is willing to lay down his life to protect his sheep. I also think about the heart of the shepherd that Jesus talked about in Luke 15, who left the flock to find the one that had gone astray. And when he found it and brought it back, he was filled with great joy. This is the shepherd who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is one who cares for us, who tends us, who protects us, who feeds us, who loves on us. That great shepherd of the sheep. Do you know that means that we belong to God? We're a member of his flock. As one picture of the scripture says, 
We belong together with him, with that great shepherd of our souls. And then it says this, through the blood of the everlasting covenants, through is the Greek word dia. I love it. It means by means of, by means of the blood of the everlasting covenant. This is all by means of the perfect finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember what covenant means. We talked about that at the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Covenant is a solemn agreement between two parties. The new covenant is a solemn, binding, most powerful agreement between God the Father and God the Son. And God the Father doesn't fail to keep up his end of the agreement, and neither does God the Son. And guess what? All of those who are born again are in Christ. We are in the promise keeper. And so we are the recipients of the blessings of the new covenant. Wow. Not because of our performance, good or bad, but because of the perfect person and performance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And note, please, what it says about this covenant. It is the everlasting covenant. You know, again, the contrast that we see between the old and the new, the law of God and the grace of God. No, in in the old covenant, in the covenant of law, everything is temporary. Uh, There is temporary priests They are offering temporary sacrifices, bringing only temporary results. And guess what? It had to be repeated over and over again. Versus everlasting work, an everlasting covenant. No matter what, no matter how we feel, no matter the situation, this is the everlasting covenant that never fades away. It's built upon the integrity and perfection of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the perfection of his finished work. So that's the basis of the new covenant. Verse 20, may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And here's what this accomplishes. This is this is great stuff. Verse 21, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see what it says there? Make you complete. This isn't you making yourself complete, making yourself better, making yourself more perfect. No, this is, well, the subject is the God of peace in verse 20. He is the one who makes us complete in every perfect work. Do you see that in every good work to do his will? You see, God is the one who makes us complete. The perfection and the completeness of Jesus Christ himself is our completeness. And Jesus is in a way out there somewhere over the rainbow. Jesus is inside of us. Watch this over in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. It says this, For in him, Christ, 
dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Imagine, all of the Father, all of the Son, all of the Holy Spirit dwells bodily in Christ in full measure. Watch this, verse 10, Colossians 2.10, And you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. How can we say that we're incomplete when God has given us the Lord Jesus Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 um, bears this out, beginning in uh, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Listen, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. Our completeness is Jesus himself. And look, God is the one who enables us through the completeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the one to make us complete in every good work to do his will. Not just partially, but completely to get the job done as we rest and rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him by faith in every good work. Wow, that's that's great. Whether you know you're at the workplace or you're at home or you're in the market or you're at school or wherever, every good work making you complete to do his will. And here's the powerful part. Working in you. Working in you. It is God himself who is working inside the believer what is well-pleasing in his sight. That's powerful. God is at work. God, the God of peace, of shalom, is the one who is at work inside of us. God works from the inside out. And guess what? God is dwelling in the heart of the believer, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. And then it says this, through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, that's what all of Hebrews has been all about, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And who gets the glory? God gets the glory. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It is so. Let me just read these two verses, and may I please pronounce this as a benediction to you, listening friend. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.